Hello friends, I'm your host Chris Thrill, I'm a former Royal Marines Commando, I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-Shirt Podcast. Matt, blue skies, brother. How you doing? Blue skies, that's it. <laughs> yes, I'm delighted to, uh, to to chat with you, mate. It's um, you have a fascinate well, <laughs> you have a fascinating history, an amazing YouTube channel. I suggest anybody listening just just surfs over there and check checks out Matt's channel. It's everything. Um, aviation and drones i'm trying to pick my tech tech techno words care carefully here um especially as a a pilot albeit a, only a private one um but yes what what a history you've got mate yeah it's been uh, it's been a busy 30 36 years eh wow is that from <laughs> when you first started flying remote control stuff yeah, pretty much. I mean, um, I you know obsessed with aviation and flying since I was a um, since I was a kid, and um, it's all I ever wanted to do. And um, I think that has kind of led over into you know where where I am now. So yeah, um, you know we're thirty six years into it all, and um, yeah, it's uh, managed to squeeze a lot in. I think. Yeah, and drones, Matt. It really is. I mean drones are not just the item of tech equipment at the moment there's also a whole field of controversy that that it's chucked up hasn't it with respect to um staying on the right side of the law and of course moreover aviation safety which which um probably wasn't something that people thought about back when drones first appeared on the scene yeah so let, let's let's talk about that but first of all let's let's just um go back to the beginning when when you joined the RAF or when when did you start flying so i crikey yeah like i say it's all i ever wanted to do and um i think kind of going back to the beginning i um you know joined the air cadets and became a spacey as they call themselves and um and did all of that I did a gliding scholarship um at 16 and went solo in a motor glider and uh, and got bitten by the bug even deeper i guess that's you know um it's just one of those things once it's got you and you know yourself doing your private flying i guess you'll have uh, picked up on this in the past as well potentially but um, yeah once it's got you it's got you right yes i've got a, a probably a bit of a different story to most people there but I'll, I'll come on to that later what what's a what's a motor glider i've not heard that expression before so um essentially you know looks like a, a glider as you'd expect big wings and all that sort of stuff but there's um a, an engine on the front a conventional engine and propeller on the front and you can take off and land the airplane yourself so um as it was where i did my gliding scholarship with the air cadets the the gliding squadron the, the volunteer gliding school i did that with they didn't have conventional gliders they had these motor gliders so we you know, we could taxi out, take off, fly around for, you know, however long we wanted to really to get the exercises done and then come into land again. So it was um, it was quite cool because it was a bit more than a traditional kind of gliding scholarship, if you like. So, um, yeah, 
Do you need um, a license then to fly them? I mean, a, a, a plane, aeroplane license? Kind of. Um, and actually, the, the regs have changed over the years surrounding them. So like a, a glider, you don't need a license to fly. You just go and do the, the different kind of um, staged qualifications that the gliding schools and clubs have. But it's it's not the same as a private pilot's license at all. Um, and the motor gliders, you can add them on as a rating to a private pilot's license. So you can go and um, you know get your, get your license and then add those on as a, a self-launch motor glider. Um, that seems to be the way most people do that, if you like. Gliding, it's it's I've no, I've never done it. I've never been in a in a a glider it looks amazing looks so graceful and the scenery and the experience must be incredible yeah, um it's pretty is there, is there an air what's the element of fear like i i guess it varies for everybody yeah i guess so i mean it's it's like most things right whatever you become normalized whatever's kind of whatever is normal to you you know, and you've experienced fear in certain ways throughout your career in the past, the same as I have in the military side of things. And, you know, I'm sure you can attest to this, right? It's one of those things that actually, eventually you become normalized against it and everything's so procedural. And it's the same I find when you're flying. If, you, if, you, if you're the one who isn't busy, you know, if it's your first time in a glider and you don't know what's going on and all that sort of stuff, then I can see how that could be quite scary. Um, same in any airplane, but actually if it's all explained to you and you understand what's going on and it particularly if you're given something to do that's part of the process then actually takes your mind off it and the fear element i don't know i've never i've never felt it personally i've never felt scared or felt that fear element from any aspect of my flying but um you know certain situations definitely where you're like oh it's got the you know instant sweat on but uh yeah but for me it's not a problem i understand though for some people it's it's like you know they go rigid right at the thought of getting on an airliner even and um yeah know, I'm, think, I'm thinking back to sort of uh, i don't know if parallel experiences is the right word because obviously i've never been in a glider but I remember when skydiving, when when your chute is finally opened or you finally open your chute, yeah, you can really yank down on one of your um, toggles and it starts putting you into a spin and it's great for sort of two or three revolutions and then suddenly you start to think, gosh, if I pull too hard, if I collapse this chute. Yeah, it's going oh. to get emotional. <laughs> and I'm quite happy at that moment, Matt. So, right, stop it. Just, just just have a little wheelie and then that that that's enough and yeah the other time that's... i was flying back to fort pierce from a, a, a small strip called okeechobee mm -hmm. in uh in in uh, the cessna that the flight school had and and i suddenly hit turbulence and i hadn't experienced that in any of my lessons only obviously when when i've flown on uh, airliners yeah um and i've had it really bad on airliners before but when you're on your own in that small cockpit and the plane is just going up by six feet and then suddenly down whoa yeah there yeah. was a moment of 
I don't really want to be here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. A bit too late. Not much choice at that point, but yeah, no, I, I totally get it. And that's the, I think that's the thing for me with flying full stop. That's where my fascination, whether it's, you know, find the helicopters or fixed wing stuff or, um, or the kind of gliding, conventional gliding and motor gliding. Um, it's the fact that you are so ultimately, I suppose, insignificant and, you know, you're at the mercy of not just people and the things around you, but also the the world, the the earth. You know, it's yeah. It, for me, it's that it really is that kind of visceral connection, if you like, with the the air that we're in, and you obviously get to feel that when you're being thrown around in turbulence quite a bit. So, yeah, yeah. You all, you also have to make sure you don't hit someone, don't you? Which is, I mean, it, when I flew in the states, they. I think they gave you kind of fixed altitudes. If you were flying north, you flew at this altitude. But if you were coming south, you flew at another just to give a margin of... Does that sound about right? Yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly it. So they have in, in the States... So I actually did my... Kind of after the, the gliding scholarship and stuff like that, I did my pilot's license out in Florida. Um, kind of self-funded that from a business that I had while I was at school building computers, weirdly. And... Um, yeah, went and did my pilot's license when I left school for my A-levels. And um, it's one of those things in America, because there's so much general aviation out there, there's so much, so many people fly. Like like over here now, everyone's got a drone, right? Everyone over there has got an aeroplane, it seems. Or certainly once you get into that community, that's how it works. And um, because the cost is just so much more conducive to doing it over there, I think. But yeah, they have their, their different cruising levels. So if you're going in different directions against the kind of, um, heading on a compass you'll cruise at a different level so the chance of bumping into someone are a lot less and it's totally built for it as well right like they've got way less controlled airspace mostly because they've got way more space anyway so there's you're not kind of squeezed between Birmingham and East Midlands and there's a two mile wide gap that all of the um, kind of Cessnas and Robinson helicopters are trying to squeeze through together at the same time um, and weather as well of course that we're always battling against here um, but yeah, they're just set up for it. You know, over there you speak to air traffic and you get a flight following service and they'll look after you and, you know, do everything they can to tell you about other people and keep you out of the way. And over here, it's, it's very, very much different. I, I think, you know, yeah, for our friends at home, um, in the States, you've got a lot of like ranchers, people that have got an enormous amount of land so they can have a, a, a runway in their back garden, so to speak. And it's just simpler to hop in a plane to go and see your mate 40 miles over there than it is to get in the car. Um, they had something, Matt, called no rads. Do you, do you, were you familiar with that? Um, I've heard of no rad in terms of the, um, like when they launch against enemy. Oh yeah, no, this is, this is a, um, this is a, a different thing. It's, it's these old farmer types that don't even have a radio in their plane. Right. And they'll just get up there, fly to that, you know, fly to their mate's farm, fly back again, and no radio procedure at all. So of yeah. course, makes them, you know, a very dangerous element. I, 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 I suppose. Yeah, quite. Um, I mean, I'm not even sure what the legal requirements of are with respect to that. Obviously, you've got to have a license, which is under the. It's the FAA in America, isn't it? The Federal it is, yeah. Aviation Authority. 
and um, what are we? We're the CAA, aren't we? The Civil Aviation Authority. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, but uh, yeah, you fly along and you you constantly your eyes appeal looking for other traffic. Yeah, and you can't help but imagine that moment because if it came, it would just happen so quick. You, you just a mid-air collision. Just yeah, it doesn't bear thinking about. No, it doesn't. And um, yeah, I think in America, interestingly, though, at the beginning of 2020, um, they made it mandatory that all aircraft over a certain weight, and I think it's only 500 kilos. So it's all all aircraft, you know, basically, apart from ironically, the very small home built ones that don't have a radio and you don't need a license for in America, um, you know, single person, build it in your garage kind of thing, um, have to have a transponder on that tells people where you are and because they've made it mandatory and everyone has to have it um actually i think that's made it really safe because you you know everyone now flies with an ipad or an iphone with the map on and you know all the gps mapping and it feeds into that and it shows you where not everybody is but where a lot of the other people are you know and and that's a really good thing i think although a lot of people like oh it's big brother watching um, let's not get it into the UK. I'm like, no, 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 we need it in the UK, like that more than in America, I'd say. So, mm. Where did you learn to fly? I, I learned at Fort Pierce. I don't know if you've heard that name. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have flown, I did I think I did my, no, my qualifying cross country was up to St. Augustine. But yeah, the um, I learned to fly Ormond Beach in Florida. So just outside kind of Daytona Beach. Yeah. I remember on my... Um, on my exam, so the actual test, I had a Swedish guy, funny enough, I don't know how he'd managed to find his way over there, but, but Epic. Sven, I think his name was, and um, <laughs> and we taxied up to the, we taxied up to the, I'm probably using all the wrong terminology, because it was quite a while ago, but I taxied up to the runway, and you know you've got the, it's a big white stop line, you're not allowed to go over it you must be really familiar with this in all your your years of flying and yeah and there's just one rule you don't go over that line before you've got um is it permission from air traffic control or ground control it's that's right it'll be either or yeah whoever's controlling that piece of tarmac yeah. and i was so sort of preoccupied and those underlying nerves on your test that i i taxied out and i completely forgot <laughs> and just as we went over it out the corner of my eye i saw his leg flinch as he went to hit the brake because you've obviously got dual dual controls in a cessna so either either person can fly it yeah and as his leg flinch i i clicked what I'd, what i'd done and i slammed the brake on yeah before, before he had a chance to and he looked at me and said can you go over that line i was like no not not without permission from air traffic control and his his that that was enough to pacify <laughs> right good work <laughs> good effort oh, yes dear. did you have any um well i mean throughout your career you have you had near misses what what have been your dodgier experiences yeah i mean i, I don't think um I think everyone who's done any amount of aviation probably has, you know, some, some tales, right. But um, yeah, I don't think you can have, do a few thousand flying hours in the military on the, on the front line and things like that as well, without having had 
a few scrapes and and bumps and bruises but um yeah i mean there's a couple um there's um i suppose the most interesting one was um we were recovering as a formation so flying as a formation as we always did when we were doing work um, over in iraq in this instance um, and we've been out over the city um dropped some guys off to do what they do and um we're going back to um, baghdad international airport which is where we were based at the time um to refuel and rearm and then go back out again and um, and extract the guys from the um, extraction point the exfil point um, after the job and on the way back into the um, into the airport uh, there was a pair of ospreys so um, u.s marine corps ospreys that had taken off from pretty much where we were going to land and were coming the opposite way out of Baghdad airport. And they got told, you know, but the Osprey, again, I suppose for those who don't know, can take off like a helicopter. Um, and then it's got the rotors that tilt on the end of the wings. So it kind of then it kind of accelerates and fly at the speed of a normal aeroplane, really. And if they then want to come into land, you know, they, I mean, I think they can put 30 odd troops down the back of one of those things like it's bigger than a chinook and um, and a lot faster when it's an airplane mode and the the guys have been told that we were coming in as a formation of five pumas um and to hold on a certain side of the runway so they'd taken off and they were in helicopter mode and they were told to hold unfortunately by the time they'd got the message they'd already gone into airplane mode and were you know off frequency heading out into the desert it exactly the point that we were at the time and um we hadn't heard this communication going on because they were on their own frequency and disappearing into the desert so we thought but they'd actually turned in our direction and um, i was sat in the center seat because we got to um, a new crew coming in and we were trying to kind of get them worked up so that they knew the area and things like that and i looked across and i was like guys is that an osprey and as i said osprey we were number two in the formation. I saw this Osprey just go the other side of our lead aircraft. And I thought, you know, when the hairs on the back of your neck stand up and you think there's something not right here. Because what we used to teach people and what, what you know, you're taught in the military is if you can see an aircraft, find out where their wingman is. Because you never fly on your own, particularly, in, you know, out in theatre. And, um, and I was like, oh, my God that osprey that i can see is exactly the same distance away that i would be if i was in formation with it to us and i remember looking out to the like leaning forwards to look past the the pilot who was sat in the right hand seat at the time and just seeing these big tip lights on the end of the osprey blades right you know literally a hundred feet away from us bearing down on us and as as i looked and saw it the crewman also at the same time i think had had exactly the same thing because he'd spotted the the osprey i'd seen coming out he looked and he was like oh my god break left descend and it was just carnage for the next 30 seconds and i actually ducked down in the center seat and i visualized these the blades of the osprey just coming straight through and taking us out it was that close um and we yeah we ended up descending you know 110 degrees roll i think the guys got to and pulled down we were only at 150 feet gosh um so yeah ended up you know almost upside down and then recovered and climbed away and again one of the things in the the original puma that we were flying at the time the puma one is that the engines don't respond very quickly that was one of the reasons there were a lot of accidents in the puma aside from what we were trying to do with the airplane but um 
yeah, and um, and we we just just got away with it. That's the closest I've come, I think, that I can think of. And um, it was deeply, deeply unpleasant. In fact, one of the guys who was on the um, on the aircraft never flew again. He was just too it, it shook him so much that um, that he just couldn't couldn't get back in the seat. Mav um, and air traffic said they hit the crash alarm because they obviously they knew where the Ospreys were going. They knew where we were, and the air traffickers the, who was controlling just said, "I, I looked out." when I realized what was going on, the radar contacts merged. I saw you guys, you know, just some of the lights, cause we, we run fairly dark in those situations anyway. He's like, I just knew what I was looking for and I could see you guys roll just out of the way and then just miss the ground. Um, and he was like, I just expected to see a fireball. And oh. yeah, so horrible if I'm honest, but you know, you, you crack on, right? We went and refueled, we got a job to do, went and grabbed the guys. And then afterwards we went for a, um, a green beans, Moak, a mother of all coffees, and uh, you chat about it and work out how not to let it happen again, right? So, yes, altitude's your friend, isn't it? When you're a pilot, <laughs> yeah, if you've got plenty of altitude, you've got time to put things right and and time to just sort of chill a bit and work out what's gone. It's like when you get the checklist out, isn't it? Yeah. Again, people listening, uh, anything that goes wrong in an aircraft, believe it or not, you don't just start pushing buttons and you know trying to be James Bond, you, you, you first of all go to your checklist and you get it out and you calmly lift the cover and say, right, look down the index for the problem that you're having, go to that chapter and then it lists what you need to do in, in obviously in, in this order to put wrong the problem that, that you've got. So it could be something like you're coming into your, your engines out and you're coming into water and you'll get down the bottom of the page and it'll say, open your door, shove your foot in the door to stop it being forced closed when you hit the water. <laughs> it doesn't actually say get out the plane because <laughs> I think by that stage you'll be underwater. But it really is. It's, it's really impressive, Matt, that level of, um, I mean, when you watch the, the Chesney Sullenberger, if that was his name, when he lands on the, the, the um, airliner on the Hudson, and he's just so calm going through the checks yeah turns to his co-pilot any ideas like right you know no, no panic whatsoever um i think they missed one thing which is they forgot to pull the they forgot to put the plugs down in the airplane to make it waterproof um <laughs> but uh but again yeah. i think that comes back down to that fear thing that you brought up at the very beginning where we practice for those things so much that and the whole point and the reason we do that and the reason particularly in the military side of things whenever we used to go out and fly you know there would never be a routine flight particularly when i was instructing right your your job was to make sure that the maximum training value came out of every trip and you know if someone was just like oh we're just going to fly from here to there it's 30 minutes away we're going at medium level there's always an opportunity to learn something and or to teach something or to all of you, you know, gain some experience from it. So you would practice an emergency um, because you could so that when it happened for real and they did happen fairly regularly, you're not afraid of it. You, you know, it's just another procedure and you tackle it exactly the same as you would if you were practicing. And one of the big things is that golden seven seconds I always used to think of it as and still do, I suppose. It's like, don't do anything for the first seven seconds. There's certain things, particularly in a helicopter, you have to do if, if certain things go wrong before that. But 
once you've done what you need to to keep yourself in the air and make sure everything's okay and it's not catastrophic it's like right start your watch wait for seven seconds and then start going through everything you know and in that time you can get your checklist out you can start talking to people you might get a radio call out to air traffic to tell them something's going on but it's really really important that you don't like you say go rushing into flicking everything and turning the switches because you might make it worse and you know lots of people have been killed from shutting the wrong engine down you know like Mm -hmm. get an engine fire the handle lights up and someone identifies and pulls the other other engine and you think how can that happen but it does it happens yeah quite disappointingly regularly i suppose so there's so much going on when you're flying and the, the problem is with it or the issue is that the more au fait you get with all the systems, with the radio procedure, with your observation, your navigation, the whole shebang, the, uh, the temptation must be to get complacent. And I fell foul of that. And it's the other way around. The, the more familiar you get with procedure, the less compl- you have to fight not to get complacent. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I think, in a way, it's it's more difficult to do that in the kind of multi-crew aircraft that I flew in the military. So when there's more than kind of one pilot or you, you're working with another um, pilot or navigator and a, a crew crewman or crewwoman down the back, it's, it's a little bit more difficult to become c- complacent because you've always got somebody else there who will have a different experience level, will think about things slightly differently. So you're always checking each other and, and you know, communicating. Um, but certainly I know having done quite a bit of single pilot stuff, um, yeah, you have to really keep a check on yourself. Um, there's a great book actually called the killing zone, which is about that kind of 100 to about 500 hours or a thousand hours, I think is where it now sits. But the first 500 hours of a pilot's flying career are generally the most dangerous because you get, you know, you get your license or you get your wings and that takes you 150-ish hours, let's say, to go on the commercial side. And then you think you're okay, right, and you do everything properly for the first year. But then you slip into this, you know, I know what I'm doing now. I've not had an incident. I've not had an engine failure. I've not had a, you know, a hydraulic leak for the whole time I've been flying. You know, you start to kind of think, oh, I can roll up a roll up a fat one and um, mm-hmm. don't have to worry about it now. And that is when people get really dangerous. And then, of course, you have a couple of incidents and that then sharpens you back up and then you go out of the other side of the killing zone because your experience now means that you don't fall into that trap of complacency is the kind of idea behind it. But yeah, it, it is a real, a real issue. And I think, you know, you, you can, um, I think operators had a similar thing, right? The guys on the ground, you know, once you get so used to doing things and, and again, like weapon ear it becomes normal. Um, and it's it's totally not a normal thing, right? To have to carry weapons around with you and just have access to them and use them as a tool in your day job isn't a normal thing, really. Um, but it becomes normal. Yeah, and, you know that that then leads to a bit of complacency, I, I think. So until something happens and then everyone tight, tightens up again. So yeah, there's a couple of examples I can give you from Northern Ireland. Um, <clears throat> I was talking to Chris Dangerfield on his on uh, um, his channel about this, or he was on my channel and we were talking about it. And you do all this training before 
go into the Northern Ireland conflict and and uh, you get really good at it as you do in any sort of beat up. And then when you get out there, it's like nothing happens. <laughs> yeah. right? You're expecting this guy to get shot and this thing to go bang and 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 this and, and other than sort of people who keep throwing bricks at you, which does happen a lot. Yes. There's, there's nothing really kind of life threatening and the temptation is to think ah they've they've overtrained us they've trained us for a scenario that might take place but it's kind of unlikely and no it it's the other way around it's just that it hasn't happened to you yet yes so after about a week on patrol you're looking at the guy next to you going this this feel right to you like you know this is all that training we did and and we've got these essentially machine guns in our in our hands and and nothing's going then it when it goes bang whoa yeah <laughs> when it all kicks off ah <laughs> uh, and you you just have to take it as a lesson in in not getting complacent yeah um the same when i was um flying i flew out to this airport that i mentioned okeechobee and it's uh, right out in the sticks and it was a great place to go and practice your landings as a, as a, as a solo pilot. So for our friends at home again, so I'm flying solo, which you can do after about 12 hours. If you, if you show that you've got the ap aptitude for it and then you're learning on your own, practicing on your own to take your, your pilot's license test. And I flew out in that period to Okeechobee and I, I landed on this runway and then I, I, I took off. There's no um, air traffic control at that airport. It's just everything's done between you and other pilots. And as such, I let my radio procedure lapse and I just took off again. I mean, there's nobody there, right? This is what, this is the way your mind's thinking. And then I flew another circuit and then I came in, I thought, do you know what? I'm just going to land the way that I, the opposite way to, to taking off just to, just so I can get more, more practice in. Right. And, um, as I landed and I, I was again, just going to spin the plane round at the end of the runway and take off again. And this voice came over the radio. I can't remember what my call sign was, but it was like three zero Bravo. Do you intend to take off in that direction again? <laughs> oh my God. In that moment, you just feel like the biggest prat. Yeah. And I waffled something about, yeah, I think the wind has changed direction over. <laughs> and it wasn't, it was just that, oh my God. You imagine if I'd taken off as someone was coming into land. It was, it, it, yeah, it doesn't, yeah. doesn't bear thinking about. It really doesn't, eh? So how did you, um, did you leave school with many qualifications, Matt, to join the, the RAF? No. Um, well, it was a bit of a strange one. So I applied to go into the Air Force on a sixth form scholarship. Um, they just opened up pilot entry to non-graduates. So you had to have a degree to go into the Air Force as a pilot for a long time. Um, in fact, it was I think it was more to go in as an officer rather than to go through the pilot stream. It was just, you know, if you want to be an officer, then you've got to have a degree and I had to become an officer to fly um, because they're all commissioned pilots. So, um, and I, I, I grew up on a council estate in Stoke-on-Trent, right? So um, I 
didn't speak when I was 16, I didn't speak how I do now. And I've got a bit of a Northern accent still now, but it is, this is a neutral accent. Like I live in Stoke-on-Trent again now with my family and everyone thinks I'm really posh. And it's like, nah, you know, I am not. I'm from the, the estate around the corner kind of thing. And people are quite surprised when they hear that, when they live around here, you know? And um, yeah, so I applied and got rejected. Um, I got all the way through the selection process at Cranwell um, and got, you know, right to the end. And it was brilliant. I think there was only six of us who got through to the end and there were five spaces and, and I, th- I thought I'd done quite well. And I got a letter through two months later. It was like, really sorry, you were really good, but you spoke with too colloquial an accent and you were difficult to understand. And it's just like, brilliant. Thanks. That sounds like um, double speak, if ever there were. <laughs> Big time. Yeah, that's it. Right? We don't like your type in the mess. That, yeah. And I, and I think there was an element of that, right? There were all the, you know, wing commanders that were from the home counties. And I don't think they come across many people from council estates in stoke are blind to be pilots i remember going to the careers office and they laughed at me when i said i would like to be a pilot you know they're like oh yeah okay wouldn't we all you know and it's like brilliant thanks and, and again you know i'm one of those kinds of people that that just that sparks that fire in me to be like you know what i'm going to show you i'm going to do this because i want it to and no one can tell me i can't like that's up to me to fail rather than me to you know let you win kind of thing so yeah, I, and, and I went to, yeah, normal school here, um, got all right GCSEs, um, you know, I think nine or whatever it was, um, nothing special, um, pretty much flunked my A-levels. I got the kind of, I got three A-levels, but like C's and a B or something. I really hate, I hated school, to be honest. I, it, I hated it. Um, it bored me and all I wanted to do was fly, which is ironic because you need reasonable grades to go and fly, right? Mm. Um, I was never going to go to uni. That wasn't something that we could either afford or that interested me. Um, and that was it. I just wanted to fly. So, yeah, I got rejected from that. I was like, right, okay, so how do I get in then? Um, and one of the things I said was go and get elocution lessons. I'm like, I'm not getting elocution lessons, you know, steady on. Um, and, yeah, and, and I was like, right, okay, so I did my levels. Um, I had a worked a job, set up a business selling computers, weirdly, when I was at, at home building and selling computers when they were, you know, um, everyone was buying home PCs. So it was quite, quite good, actually. And, um, and I saved enough money to pay to go out to Florida and do my pilot's license. Um, so I finished my last the, day. Um, what were the processors back then? Was it 386? Uh, 486. 486. DX, DX66. Oh. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I, I used to sell that when I was in Hong Kong. I used to, well, I say I used to sell it. I didn't actually sell a single component, but I worked in this company and we supplied all the, all the companies worldwide that were making PCs at the time. And um, yeah, I was remember it was a 286, 386, 48. Now the processors are just probably That's, a thousand times. It's insane, isn't it? Yeah, than literally they, a thousand times or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's madness. But no, the, the one that made the most money, weirdly, was um, well, there's two things. It was upda- upgrading people's RAM from four megabytes to eight megabytes. Double your RAM. And um, yeah, you used to buy the four meg, four megabyte sticks of RAM for like 43 quid. But I'd charge 100 pounds to put it in the computer. And it was really bad in a way because, I mean, literally, you know, you take the case off at the time. You took the case off, clip it in, put the case back on, done. But we 
you know, they come and drop their computers off at my mum and dad's house because that's where I was doing it from in like in their um, living room. All these computers everywhere. It was incredible. They hated it, but it was, you know, it was earning some money for me. So, um, yeah. And, you know, you take the computer, right, come back at four o'clock this afternoon and you'd literally do it, put it back and put a sticker on, say it was theirs. And they'd come back and think you spent all day working on it. And um, yeah, that was that was good. And the other one was modems, you know, when the Internet first came out. And um, yeah, it was buying the kind of dial up modems, whatever it was, 25.6 K modems. Um, and yeah, we were buying those, put them in, you know, set it up, load people onto, what was it called? Fenetra or something, I think was the provider. And, you want uh, to know a, a, a trade secret? Hmm. I don't know if you know this, but we used to sell something called Remarks. Okay. And what that was, was a, pentium processor and they would literally grind the writing off on a milling machine and so a 286 would then be reprinted with a 386 no right and then or a 386 would be 486 so basically they the the the, the resellers in hong kong are conning you wow and what they would do when they built when they when people would phone up to order they could they had the option of buying the genuine item or ordering a, a, a remark as we called it. Hmm. And what they would do with the remark is you could adjust the, um, uh, I can't remember the name, the jump, the jumpers inside yeah, the, yeah. on the motherboard and reprogram the CMOS or whatever it is. So, so it came up as a, you know, four, eight, six when it wasn't. Oh, and no and way. I, I used to just think, I wonder how many people worldwide now are going, yeah, I've got a Pentium 486. It's like, no, you haven't. Not so much. (laughs) No way. So basically your whole career has been getting to this point where you now have a good accent for YouTube. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, apparently so. That's exactly it. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah, it was weird, isn't it? I mean, I, I, yeah, finished my levels, went out to Florida for a month and did my pilot's license and then um, kind of stayed out there and did loads of flying, um, got asked to go and um, fly as a second officer on a King Air and stuff like that. And it was ace. Like I was 18, never left Stoke-on-Trent before um, and effectively. And like I'm this 18-year-old kid living out in Florida um first time away from home it was absolutely epic and um during that time applied to the air force um you know i think they were like okay well he's he's not really a training risk now because he's proved he can you know do something outside the box and went and did it and yeah and i joined the air force at 19 and lost my accent within a couple of years got disowned by everyone at home and uh and yeah landed i guess where i am now with the the youtube accent (laughs) Yes, and all the bloody technology you need for YouTube, and uh, yes, yeah. Cool. What um, when you went out to Florida, was that to do your private or did you do your commercial? Yeah, so I went out to do my private and actually stayed there and did my FAA commercial at the time. So um, yeah, I got um, asked. Effectively, the the guy who owned the flying school um, had a like a private charter company as well. And um, I think saw that I picked it up fairly quickly wow. and had the aptitude to do it and said, look, you know, if you want to stay, 
and I wasn't sure whether it was a bit of a con at the time because I was like, is he conning me to try and get another, you know, I think I'd spent, I think it was only like three and a half grand to go and do my PPL there. And it was like, well, if you give us 10, then we can do your CPL. And I'm like, mm, I'm not sure, probably need to speak to my parents about this. Like that's all the money I've made in the last three years of doing these computers, like will be gone. Um, and they were just like, just do it. You're there. You can see that the guys are actually flying these aeroplanes that he's telling you you're going to fly like, and you get your license at the end of the day. So yeah. Um, stayed out there and did that. Yeah. I got quite caught up you, as you do when you do such a course, I got quite caught up with it and I was meeting a lot of commercial pilots. So I was getting to go and sit in, um, jet stream, were they called jet stream could have been yeah jet streams know, these these private jets that the the hollywood Gulf streams and stuff yeah you know i'm sitting in the cockpit pushing he's going yeah push whatever you want okay right what does this do <laughs> <laughs> and it's very tempting to go the commercial route but for me it would have meant remortgaging my house yeah the deciding factor was really do i want to be a taxi driver in the sky which is yeah. no disrespect to pilots. If that's what you love, and I, I've met pilots that they just love the systems approach, sitting there, you know, managing a computer. Basically, they they love the technical aspect of flying. But for me, I thought there's so much I want to do in the world. If I'm sat in a cockpit for eight hours flying to New York, that's just eight hours I'm never going to get back. Yeah, especially if it's at night and it's dark. <laughs> yes waiting for the um steward steward or stewardess to bring you your coffee it, it's but uh yeah that's it and i don't know whether i could have gone like fully commercial i mean that was amazing right at 18 i got you know 500 hours flying in my first year whilst applying to the air force um you know it was it and, and to be honest the air force was the only thing i was ever going to do like that was it my mind was set this is what i'm going to do but at the same time it was like, well, I've got a pretty cool fallback, actually, because I could come back out to Florida if it doesn't work out and fly over here doing the, you know, shuttle runs on these kind of small charter aircraft. And that, you know, that that would have been a fairly cool career. And at the time, I mean, this is only this is a 2000-ish, you know, and um, and at the time, actually, the wages were pretty good for someone who would have been 18 to effectively put the wheels up and down, you know, and greet the passengers as they come on the aeroplane. Like, I'd take whatever it was, 45 grand a year at mm. the time to do that. It's like, yeah, I'll put the wheels up and down for that. I'm sure it would have become boring very quickly, you know, eventually. But, um, yeah, and, and obviously the the industry is totally different now. The commercial flying industry is totally different than it was, I mean, obviously, than it was six months ago, right, but than it, than it was 10 or 15 years ago where – it was a reasonable lifestyle and you got paid quite well with they're the profession. hammered now mate aren't they unbelievable flying hours they're up there pushing the, the limits of safety the pay yeah. must have come right down and then there's no well especially in the current climate there's no guarantee of a of a, of a long-term flying career out of it no yeah and I, I heard reports of um, some companies that are actually charging people who've just qualified and got their license bear in mind these people have like now it's like well, it's a hundred grand if you want to do a full um like integrated course and that is i mean that leads me on to the place i am now in in my life right that that if you want to we talk about that in a bit but um like it's a hundred grand to get your license and then there are certain airlines that are charging people 
to sit in the co-pilot seat so that they can get experience in, in a jet in a co and you think how is how is this how have we come to this yeah i blame freaking ryanair well I, I didn't want to name the name but yeah you know that that's that's one of the ones who are by the sounds of it effectively charging people to sit in the seat and you think well my neck it's not right is it no won't be long before ryanair are, are charging you to have a what do you call it a porthole yeah <laughs> a, a <laughs> window it. the window seat or use that's the toilet or something. Extra. yeah <laughs> you want to see along with, a, with a sticker and just stick it on the yeah <laughs> on the on the fuselage that's it yeah oh dear so i'm conscious of our time here matt and uh, yeah. should we talk about your deployment experiences then yeah yeah because that's um i mean have you read chicken hawk i have yeah what a book eh <laughs> yeah if you ever want to end up flying helicopters folks just read chicken hawk was it richard mason uh, yeah. About yeah, his uh, flying uh, Hueys in Vietnam. Yeah. Ended up um, in prison, actually, for, a, I think he began s selling drugs after his Vietnam uh, experience. I think there's a whole load of PTSD and stuff chucked, chucked into that. As not, not surprisingly, as you, <laughs> you, you'd probably experience flying into hot LZs all the time. But my friend said, he handed me that book, he said, Chris, and he just, he was trying to become a, a, a helicopter pilot in the Marines. Right. He said, if you want to know how to fly helicopters, read the first five pages of that book. Yeah. And he's talking about this, is it cyclic, they call it? The, That's it, yeah. Controls and stuff, and yes. That was, yeah. did you, do you ever um, think about those guys in Vietnam, the, the Huey pilots? Yeah, actually, the kind of reading things like Chicken Hawk was part of our um, flying training, weirdly, when we joined the Defence Helicopter Flying School um, over at Shawbury. You know, you start your flying training, like, right, this is the recommended reading, and Chicken Hawk was one of them, weirdly, because, and it's a, it's a strange thing, and, um, you know, when you go through the military training, the, the machine, the military training machine is effectively a sausage factory, isn't it? You know, you put people in one end who have a certain aptitude, and a potential to do something and then if they make it all the way through they come out of the other end and they're a generally you know what the product is and one of the things i think particularly in the the rotary world and it's funny right because the the air force get a lot of stick from the other forces um because we all live in hotels and all this sort of stuff and actually that's true if you're in the air force but helicopters in the air force are owned by land command so actually, you are an extension of the the land army, mm. and um, to that end, like I well, I don't ever remember staying in a hotel really. When I was flying helicopters, we were in the tents, or um, you know, we were wherever the people we were supporting were living with them and working with them, because that's the only way that you could do the job and be as effective as you needed to be was to live it with them you know um yeah and, and it was and it was really interesting because of that um you know so sorry dude i, I kind of went off track there no you know, no no it's brilliant questioning and uh, it's brilliant it's all the stuff we want to hear but i think the ref must say must have to say a massive um thank you to the uh, ref reg regiment isn't it who 
because ever since that five mile of death video came out they've just taken so much so much <laughs> <Yeah>. shit <laughs> it's taken the the heat off everybody everybody <laughs> else that, that used to get all the shit so yeah um, that's it yes for anyone watching just google uh RAF regiment five mile of death and it's um yes uh it's good some uh some liver puddling chap who's i don't know i don't i hope he's able to to, to laugh at it <laughs> <laughs> you'll see what i mean folks if you that's it watch it um so as far as combat deployments you mentioned iraq were, were you were you in afghanistan I, I i can't think of the timings yeah, so um, I so I was on the Puma um, Puma One and went out to Iraq um, on the front lines, a couple of tours out in Iraq. Um, and we the way it worked with the job that we were doing out there, we generally deployed with um, a certain um, counterterrorism or special forces unit, and we would stay with the same squadron, so the same group of pilots. So our flight on the squadron I was on in the Air Force weren't we're not kind of aligned with one of the squadrons um on the special forces side of things but we generally worked with them whenever we went away our time and routines were generally very similar um so that was that was what we did so i did a, a couple of tours out there and um yeah some really interesting flying some really interesting work that we did out there um, and as these things are because of the nature of the assets that we were flying and the people that we were working with there was um it, and it wasn't mission creep in our instance we knew we were going out there to be an organic asset generally and to be to go out and do whatever was required um you know and not everyone was able to go out and do that you know we had certain crews that did certain things and there were crews that did the green work so the um, non-organic stuff where it'd be going and we know where they're going to go and they've got a task sheet for the day and that's it. And then there were other crews that did the organic work, which, you know, required a little bit of a different skill set, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, and as part of that, um, yeah, you know, I mean, operated in um, America doing counterterrorism stuff um, for the, in the kind of Homeland security stuff, again, because of the people that we worked with um, there was um, out in Norway as well. Um, then we piggybacked on an exercise out in Kenya a number of times to go and do things in places in and around Kenya. Um, and again, right. And, and you'll probably have come across this. It's one of those things that you end up, I think in certain places within the military being exposed to things which, um, aren't necessarily like they don't make the media. Like everyone thinks, oh, we were in Afghanistan, we were in, um, Iraq and we were, but there's also a lot of other, of other things going on um, around the world that see you in different places. And um, I think because of the aircraft that I flew primarily, um, it meant that we had that capability that was utilized actually quite often to go to other places which weren't in the news. So um, I never went to Afghanistan um, in the Puma. Um, but I may have been in and around that region at some point doing certain things. And um yeah, but the I was off the Puma one before uh, the Puma two went to Afghanistan. Um, I actually um, I had my accident that ended my Air Force flying career before the Puma two went out to um, to Afghanistan. But the guys and girls are out there doing a lot of work now. You know, still there doing the doing the job. So, 
Are you able to speak about that, your accident? Yeah, I can do. Um, so I, <clears throat> I did my kind of operational tours on the Puma 1, um, became an instructor at 26, so the youngest helicopter instructor in the Air Force at the time. Um, and again, I think it's just because I was so hungry for it, right? I worked so hard to prove to people that I wasn't this, this thick kid from Stoke um, and that I could do things that other people had been told wasn't possible. And yeah, I became an instructor, taught on the Griffin at RAF Shawbury um, for a year. Then I got called back to the Puma Force. I was meant to have three years at Shawbury teaching. And I got called back to the Puma Force um, to help bring in the Puma 2, the brand new Puma. Um, and yeah, introduced that. Um, so I was um, deputy OC training for the Puma Force. Um, so helped to kind of create all of the training syllabus for it, um, introduce the new pilots and instructors into the, the Puma 2, got the aircraft to what we call IOC, so initial operational capability, so that we were able to then deploy. Um, but I'd also at the same time been given an opportunity to go over to the fast jet stream, which is what I'd always wanted. Um, I was kind of a, I think a lot of people fall foul of this in the military. I was a victim of timing in so much as when I went through my flying training, there was no fast jet slots at all for about 18 months. Um, so all of us went onto helicopters or multi-engine aircraft. Have, have you met Tim Davies? I haven't. Um, but I know of him from YouTube and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, you guys um, should hook up because you'd get on like a house on fire. Yeah. <laughs> I do watch his videos and his rants and stuff. And I'm like, dude, we need to have a beer and have these rants together. <laughs> like, oh my God. Yeah. Because I think, you know, we think very similarly. He obviously was very much at the pointy end down the fast jet route. And I was at the the spade end, I suppose, you know, the um, yeah, living in tents doing and it probably the equivalent thing but in the rotary side of things so yeah shout out to tim very very lovely man he uh, is pleasure I love watching with him. it's been a pleasure chatting love watching your work. yeah did, did you fly jets then at all i've i've had experience in them um and um yeah you know flown in tornado and things like that but only really as a um an addition to just because I got the opportunity to go and do it and, you know, befriended those people. I held on nine squadron um, over RF Marham, which was a GR4 squadron at the time. So did quite a bit of flying with them, um, you know, but never actually kind of as a, an official fast jet pilot. Oh, that was okay. where I was off to go. Um, we'd already got the quarter up at Linton Ouse, um, And, you know, we were six weeks away. I was doing the handover ironically from Puma two to say, right, see your Puma Force, I'm off to go and do the fast jet thing. And um, yeah, that's when I had my accident. And, um, you know, nothing nothing exciting. Like I've had a few exciting things that could have resulted in, you know, a fairly terminal outcome. And um, yeah, probably the most mundane incident you could imagine, and, it, and it's a career ender. And um, my, oh, we were night flying, um, I had the goggle, night flying goggles on um, and a, a testing system on top because we were testing the, the brand new helmet mounted sight system for the Puma 2, um, which was a new thing. And it was all the calibration to work out how it all worked and that kind of thing. And um, yeah, my we hit really heavy turbulence. It's funny you're talking about turbulence before. Um, we hit really heavy turbulence and my seat basically broke off its mounts on the floor um and fell forwards and i 
uh, it went with such force that I broke two vertebrae in my neck. Um, oh. and, and that was it. Game over. Um, you know, lucky to be able to walk again. Um, but I mean, that, that kind of thing was, was touch and go, whether I'd be up and running, running and things like that again properly um, for a long time. Um, yeah, and it was a really unpleasant, unpleasant 18 months between that accident and being unceremoniously dumped out of the military um yeah yeah and, you uh, you for all your training and your dedication and commitment you you do realize you're just a number when you leave don't you yeah it was it was horrible to be honest and i'm not going to lie i'm quite bitter about it to this day well um, it these are the things we need to be talking about in society because we've we're we're, we're in a veteran suicide epidemic yeah and we need to be asking why do I mean, obviously, there's many different factors in a suicide or in, in, indeed in PTSD. But one of them has got to be the, the kind of unceremonious dumping of you. <laughs> Once you've left, you you want to go back and knock on the door and it's like, sorry, son, you, you don't belong here anymore. And to, to some people um, that that's just a massive sense of re, sort of a loss of identity and, and a sense of rejection. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing I feel it. I felt it a bit, a bit myself at times. Yeah. And I think particularly when like it, it, they're not lying right on these military adverts, when they say it's more than just a job, because it is, it's your life. Like it is absolutely dominates and takes over every single second uh, that you're awake and you're asleep, not just because of the fact that, you know, you you've been turned into a tool to be used for a certain job generally but um on top of that it's you know everything is dictated at the whim of the politicians and you know ultimately you're there to to do your to do what you're told aren't you and um yeah it's it's totally all consuming and um i think we need as a society to realize and this is like america Gen in gen uh, generally right my experience of operating and working and, and being in america um like they really do seem to look after their veterans like they if they know like the number of times we would go out for meals when we were out there training and you go to pay for the meal at the end of the night and they're like it's all sorted sir and you're like what what do you mean no no we want to pay and they're like no no someone's paid it I'm like what and it's like, yeah, some guy, some guy, some lady paid it. They heard that you were all here on, you know, training to go out to Iraq or Afghanistan or wherever it may be. And they wanted to look after you. So they've paid it and, and paid the tip. And you think, oh, my God, in the UK, I wouldn't even tell people that I was in the military because you didn't know how they might react to it. And, yeah, it, it's um, it's interesting. And like, you know, I was at the top of my game, had an accident and I became the black sheep of the squadron no one would speak to me and yeah we were you know literally sent a letter to say this is when your med board is right this is when you've got to get out of the house and we got a you know four month old kid my wife was six months pregnant when I had my accident with our first child and um yeah it was it was savage it was absolutely brutal um yeah, yeah but, you I know, would is what it is <laughs> i'm quite happy about this podcast so far because we haven't got political and uh, i think actually it's a refreshing change for me because ah it it can it, it's also there's so much going on in the world and has gone on in the world 
in the last 20 years since what happened in New York and Washington. It can, yeah, it can taint the whole military experience thing. Mm. But I, I, the only point I wanted to make is we need to learn to respect injured servicemen and those suffering with mental health, not the ones that are serving. They're fine. They don't need your money. They don't need your cup of coffee. They don't need yeah. you to tip your hat. In fact, when I was in, if you did that to me, I would have just... I'd have cringed a bit and, and I'm, yeah. I, I know I speak on behalf of pretty much everyone else. We weren't, we weren't that much in our egos that we needed uh, people to be opening doors for us and stuff, but no. it's, it's mental health and how many people were buying that cup of coffee for the serviceman on the one hand, and then they see a homeless person. It's a ah, fucking bum. Yeah. Right? And you got to remember, no, that homeless person is someone with a story as well. Yeah statistically most likely to be a veteran um yep. i think this we've got three thousand sleeping on our streets at the moment in the uk alone um very very skewed and uh i said this to tim but a lot of this hero worship of people that are serving comes back to the fact that america need to send them to so many illegal wars so they, yeah. they, they've tried to create this uh, ethos or this aura around their servicemen that you're not allowed to criticize them and 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 and, and it, it's and it's nothing to do with the individual servicemen who just join up to serve their country as we all did yeah um i'm i'm talking now about the system behind it but enough said about that <laughs> <laughs> that's it sorry yes <laughs> dragged you sideways well i i've just this morning, uh, yesterday afternoon, I'm trying to word an email to someone that says, Chris, I want to join, I, da, 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 but then who am I working for? And, it, and, and it, it gets really hard. I don't want to steal, Matt, I don't want to steal anyone's opportunity to live the life that I've lived. Yeah, yeah. And it all comes out in the wash. I feel quite a well-balanced 50-year-old. I, I think I, I see more of life for what it is than, than most of my peers through, yeah. through just having one experience after the other. Um, but on the other hand, at what point do you, do you drop a reality <laughs> pill in there for these young people who might have to go off and kill, who might yeah. have to come home injured or living with the consequence of their actions? Um, yeah. And you need to know who you're, on whose behalf are you committing these, these, these actions? And let's talk about the weapons on the puma right? it, 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 my my memory of the puma and it's very loose is that it was a similar kind of setup like a smaller version of the sea king or have i completely got that wrong yeah i suppose i suppose that's the yeah that, that's the the thing that it'd be likened to i suppose inside it was probably more more useful area than the sea king although the guys would argue differently if, depending which one you've flown right it's always the best airplane in the world but um yeah very similar to the sea king so the junglies um who i suppose from the marine side you would have worked with um yeah we work closely with them and do i guess the equivalent but on land um so yeah very similar and, and the puma 2 in particular um is a is an absolute beast like it is um 
you know, and this is going back a long, a long, well, quite a lot, quite a few years now in my mind, but um, you could hover the Puma 2 on one engine at what we call max all up mass. So at its maximum weight, you could hover the, the aircraft on pretty much hover it on one engine in the UK. And that is incredible, um, you know, because it gives you the ability then to fill the aeroplane up to the maximum weight that it can fly at, which when I was on the fleet was 7.4 tonnes um, and fly fly the balls off it and um and it would still it would still look after you if you you know if you looked after it kind of thing um so yeah and in terms of weapons it was all for us it was self-defense um the the weapons that we carried on the aircraft were effectively the the people down the back that we were dispatching to to do their job right um very potent weapons in themselves Mm. um so yeah, it was self-defense, so machine gun in each door, um, flares of various types around the aircraft so that um, you could defeat um, any infrared, like heat-seeking missiles that would be fired at you, um, and then a, an infrared jammer on the back to try and stop some of those missiles coming out of the, um, coming out of the, the tube if you like did you get issued pistols or am i thinking of vietnam or something no no so yeah so when we were um when we were flying we were issued with pistols um generally it was the the brown in nine millimeter was our personal protection weapon um that was when you're on the normal fleet when you when you moved across you'd have um normal pistol and then the sa80 um and then in addition to that, when you did certain types of work with certain types of people, because the ammunition that the some of the operators that we then f- worked with uh, was different to the standard service issue ammunition, uh, we would use different weapons. Um, so uh, we would use the Glock pistol. Um, wow. We'd be isu- issued with the Glock, which is which was a really nice weapon, actually. Like why everyone didn't get that, and they might well do now. I don't know. Things have moved on, right? Um, and the AK, uh, well, sorry, the HK-74, um, which is the effectively an AK-47, right? But um, short, short-nosed and... Yeah, was it Heckler and Cock? Heckler and Cock, I've yeah. I've been out of it for a while. I reckon I if, think... I, if I crashed in enemy territory and I had a a Glock or a SA, I'd, I'd probably trade it for a sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't think I'd be about to start shooting anyone because <laughs> there's no one going to come and back you up. No, that's it. Well, you always used to say as well with the Browning, like um, the Browning was about as much use. Like the best thing you could do with the Browning was throw it at the enemy, um, uh, you know, and, and always save the last bullet because, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's just, it's funny, isn't it? But old an old an old weapon system, I suppose, that probably wasn't, was good when it was created, but probably not appropriate for what we were doing with it in the environments we were operating in, uh, which is, I think, one of the reasons we moved to the, you know, the Glock and the um, and the HK that we did. Aside from the fact that the enemy who were in theatre, it meant that we could use their ammunition should we need to. So, which is a, a big component of was it weapon choice. Is it easy navigating when you're on a um, a mission, and it's obviously dark. Yeah, so I mean, it has its, it has its challenges for sure. Um, we were f- very lucky in a way that, um, uh, well, I mean, so I'm talking Puma One now, right? So like Puma One was f- properly steam driven, like it was clock, map, and compass, 
Um, there was a GPS in there, but it wasn't always that great. Better than nothing. Um, and you could put the target in there. And what we used to do, and it's the whole thing like we talked about earlier with the practicing um, for emergencies all the time, like train hard, fight easy. So we would make it so that um, when we were training in the UK or training in different environments around the world, we would make it so that our pilots could get at night on goggles at 150 feet or lower in some cases to a target using a clock, a map and a compass. Because if everything goes wrong, as I had happened to me in Kenya one time, and it was horrendous because Kenya is pitch black at night where we were operating. And like when the generators switch off in people's huts and houses, that's it. You can't even see the horizon. Um, and I'm so glad that we always used to teach clock map compass because that's the only reason we got home and didn't bump into Mount Kenya one night. But yeah, you know, it, it, it it's certainly difficult um particularly when you you're leading five aircraft so you've got four other aircraft in formation behind you um particularly when people are trying to stop you getting to the place you're trying to get to because mm -hmm. they don't you know they're not stupid um this is one of the big mistakes a lot of people make right like they think that the enemy in the, some of these places that we're operating are not as clever as we are and that is that's your first mistake. Um, you know, when you start thinking that comes back to that complacency thing, like that's when stuff's going to go wrong. So they're as good at stopping you getting where you want to go as we are at trying to get there. Not quite actually, because we would generally get there. Right. So I guess we did win in a way, but um, yeah, it was, it was a skill. Um, it was something that we had to practice and you went out every night and practiced for months and years before you went on a job. And um, yeah. And then, and then we also had, in a lot of cases, when we were doing complex jobs, we were very much helped by the fact that the, the way that we operated meant that we had other ways of knowing where the target was. Because um, sometimes the target would be in a different place than it was when we took off. Sometimes the target would be moving. And um, there were ways that we could be shown where the target was whilst we were airborne from our aircraft based on the assets that we had above us that could yes. see a much better picture than we could if you if you see what i mean yeah that's a day. so um so yeah so, so it, it was it all sounds incredibly exciting i'm just hesitant to um delve too deeply because i can imagine <laughs> the the passengers that you must have picked up and dropped dropped off and um did anyone get back on the aircraft having been all shot up yeah, I mean it's it's an unfortunate part of of that side of the of the world, I think, isn't it? That side of the the job is that unfortunately there are, there are people who um, who succumb to injuries because of what the very nature of what they're doing and, and what we're doing, you know. And um, yeah, we we not regularly, I wouldn't say, but we um, we have, you know regularly had people come on who've who've received an injury of some sort um and yeah and, and i think a big part of what we used to do in the aircraft i flew was you know we were there to ultimately get those people to safety or to um the support that they needed if and when they needed it and get them there bloody quickly as well so um you know it was all about saving saving the, the lives should we need to and um you know and i'm pleased and proud to say that we've 
we've done that a lot of times, you know, and uh, yeah, and it's it's great to be part of that whole operation, right? Like everything is there, it all is in place, and it all generally because you planned it so well works as did it should. Get, did you get hit by arms fire? You know, small arms or. Uh, no. So we were, again, I suppose, fairly fortunate. Um, you know, the way that we operated, when we operated, what we operated meant generally that even when people had a go, um, we weren't, we never got hit, basically. Mm. Um, so, yeah. And I think a lot of that is down to the tactics that we employed and, and again, the training that we had and the intelligence that we had and that sort of stuff. Again, it's a it's a much bigger picture than us just going and dropping some guys off in a back garden or fast roping onto a roof or something like that. Yeah. So. Matt, let's come on then and talk about everything drones, because <laughs> as I said earlier, it's just a whole fascinating area now. And it almost seems like everybody's buying one. Yeah. Every man and his dog, eh? Yeah. So how did it, at what point did it become an issue with respect to, to air safety? I think as soon as it tipped that line where drones were, became available in, you know, retail shops, like you can pop to an electronic store and buy a drone. I think as soon as it crossed that line, that's when it starts to become a problem. For the longest time, I mean, for us, I flew model planes and helicopters as a kid. Uh, well, model planes as a kid, helicopters later on, as I could afford to when I was in the military. I used to get bantered remorselessly by the the guys and girls at work. You know, you are, you go and you go and teach people how to fly these air, you know helicopters in the week, and then at the weekend you go and fly model helicopters. You're weird, you are. Um, I'm like, well, yeah, I am. I suppose we all are a bit, aren't we? And yeah, um, you don't want to be normal. I've that's it. For nothing. That's it, mate. Well, the way normal people live their lives, it's not. <laughs> it's not right. It's not boring. much fun. No. Um, so yeah, so that and that was it. But the thing was, right, when you built, when you got a model plane or a model helicopter, like it took you, you spent a thousand quid to buy it. It took you six months to build it. You wouldn't take it out and fly it in your back garden because one, it was too big. Two, it was going to kill someone if it went wrong. And three, you didn't want to trash what you'd spent six months trying to build, and was going to cost a fortune if you crashed it. So you went to a club, you learned how to fly properly, and they then taught you the rules. And, you know, I mean, there weren't really any rules, but they taught you the club rules. They taught you how to do it safely, what to watch out for. And that was it. You flew safely. When it then became like GPS is in the drones now, so you can take your hands off and they hover. And they became, you know, a thousand quid or less. And like I say, you can buy them from the shop up the road, get them on Amazon. All of a sudden you you're into a place where we saw an explosion of, of people flying them. Um, and yeah, it's quite, it's quite concerning from a drone operator's point of view, but also from a, a you know, a full size flying point of view, because like I had a bird strike in Iraq and um, at night on goggles at low level, and it, it effectively took our Puma fully armored, fully tooled up with people down the back it effectively took us out of the sky. Um, you know, it came in so hard through the aeroplane that uh, that it knocked me unconscious. It broke my body armor. It broke my ribs. You know, we were in a, fortunately, co-pilot managed to land the aeroplane at a very nearby field hospital. Um, Bloody hell. How did you recover from 
that well i mean again i suppose this is one of the reasons we everyone who's um, at the front end is well trained because if you you know you get shot or something happens like that with the bird strike the other person can then hopefully carry on flying the aeroplane and, and as it happened you know the a very experienced co-pilot with me at the time um managed to land us at a nearby field hospital and um you know get out of the aeroplane all that sort of stuff so yeah and and this is why i think you know it's all well and good thinking all oh, these things are toys and i don't want to catastrophize because that's not the right thing to do right the um like we can use these safely and coexist but it's people need to understand what it is that they're doing right and and how to do it safely yes yes because we were talking about drones weren't we <laughs> yes but bird strike uh, in a puma my god that's that's every that's every pilot's well one of the worst nightmares isn't it yeah worst worst fears sorry is, is the word i was looking for yeah i guess so aside from uh, you know being shot or something like that it's uh, yeah fairly uh yeah it, it was a shock that's for sure yeah gosh um, did it take you long to get get better not at all no there's no messing around right we were in iraq doing the job so um yeah the engineers you know fixed the airplane within 24 hours i was um, back up in the co-pilot seat the next day on uh, on a pretty cool cocktail actually i have to say like um yeah the the stuff the americans gave us at the field hospital kind of yeah certainly made you uh Made you feel like you could go and fly. Anyway, that's for sure. God. It's like sit, heard, in that, um, sit in that seat and be quiet, and uh, yeah, don't say anything. So, yeah, I was reading about a pilot. I, I can't remember. It was a private pilot, uh, not a private pilot, but a, like a ran a private company ferrying people to and fro in America somewhere, Alaska. One of these sort of bush pilots, I think they call them. Yeah, he was a former Vietnam Huey pilot. And the guy that was writing the book that I was reading said the guy's like flying along, smoking a joint. And oh, in, fact, in fact, he said he cha chain smoked marijuana. So Jeez. Um, I guess you get to a point where you get in kind of a bit immune to the certain effects of it. And, uh, and, and you focus in on the, the beneficial ones. But. Yeah, I wouldn't want to go and test the theory, to be honest, fly with him, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> each to their own. Oh, imagine if you got up to altitude and you just started spinning out, it would be. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, savage. Just um, out of interest, did, did your mobile phones work when you were flying? Or, or was this before the sort of days? So, yeah, well, if I'm honest, I don't know, because we never took mobile comms into theatre with us. So, um, yeah, again, I think because of the nature of what we were doing and where we were based, because we weren't back in the hotels in Cyprus, you know, going into um, and then flying into theatre. We were on the ground in theatre. There was no there was no mobile comms apart from the people who needed them and they were secure phones. So um, never tried it, to be honest. Um, what about in, in, in the UK? In the UK, you could you could get a, a mobile signal in most places up to a certain height. Um, you know, if you're below about three to five thousand feet, certainly as it was at the time, um, you could you could get a signal. But um, again, to be honest, a lot of the a lot of the times when we were flying the aircraft, even in the UK, you're flying with the what's called the DAS, the defensive aid suite, kind of switched on to some certain level, um, and your mobile would 
either be jammed or interfere with that anyway so you generally switch them off when you're flying um you know there's there's actually some quite sensitive equipment on some of the aircraft that we fly even in the training roles so um yeah never never really tested it i mean flying a cessna around it seems to be you know if you have a radio problem get your mobile phone out and call their traffic control and I, i've done that once in the puma um back in the day in northern ireland um when we were um stuck somewhere um in the hills and i got a mobile phone signal but we couldn't get a radio signal back to aldergrove and um we wanted to speak to air traffic say look we're basically in cloud on the top of this hill we want an instrument recovery couldn't get them on the radio i was like well give my mobile phone a go called air traffic control shouted down the thing and they were like yeah squawk this call us on this frequency and go on this heading and we'll pick you up and it's no problem and, and it all does work so yeah have a radio problem get your phone out i guess that's the thing um i tell you what though like I can't drive from Stoke to Birmingham on the M6 without my mobile signal dropping out at some point in the car on the way. Like when we were operating out in Kenya, Kenya was one place where we did have um, mobile phones in the in the aircraft, and we had a you know we'd be using a local mobile phone because the distances we were going were so great you couldn't speak back to base. And um, yeah, we would text went to say we just lifted and text to say we were you know ETA. Um, and everywhere in Kenya, where regardless of how remote we were, we had full 3G signal all the time. It was incredible. Never known anything like it. Wow. So it was a, yeah, that was a viable means of uh, comms back to back to the base. Right there. Can you give us some examples, Matt, of um, what, what accidents have been caused by drones? Yeah, well, they've actually, fortunately so far, not been those many that have been confirmed as drones. Um, there was there's one Blackhawk out in America that um, we know hit a DJI Phantom, so it was like a DJI quadcopter, the traditional kind of drone that everyone thinks of when they think small drone. Um, I think it hit the rotors and um, and did very little damage to the aircraft, a bit of vibration, they managed to land it. Um, but if I'm honest, outside of that, there's, there's very few incidents that have been confirmed as having been drone strikes, mm. which again, I suppose leads to this whole, is it that much of a problem? Is the sky big enough that we're not going to bump into each other, but inevitably at some point we will, and it will be. Well, yeah, I mean. A novice drone flyer or drone pilot um, could naively think, oh, do you know what? I'm going to fly my drone over Heathrow Airport, see, what, <laughs> yeah. see what's going on. Do you know what I mean? You, you, yep. you, you don't know, do you? Or, or, um, no. I mean, I, I bet there's countless other examples of what, what would be inappropriate use. How, how is it? Because I've been sunbathing in the, in the garden in the summer, and the drones come over <laughs> and I thought, gosh, that, you know, it's what yeah. happens when you get YouTube famous, mate. They're all coming looking, well, for, the, looking for the shot. <laughs> yeah, I, I, wish, I wish it was to do my YouTube thing. I think it's more like this guy's just flying it around the neighborhood and it happens yeah. to go over our garden. But I was thinking, 
that could really upset some people, couldn't it? Yeah. yeah. So, so actually, you're not allowed to. Um, the rules at the moment mean that you're not allowed to fly in built-up areas unless you've got a very special permission from the CAA, the Civil Aviation Authority. So, um, you know, if and, and then if you've got that, you wouldn't generally be flying over, you know, people's houses and things like that that you're not allowed to because you know that you're not supposed to do that um without talking to them um so yeah at the moment that that is effectively illegal um you can't do it um there are though changes coming to the law uh they were meant to come in in july of 2020 but with all the pandemic that date's been slipped back now to the 31st of december 2020 I personally expect that that's going to roll on another three to six months um, is my gut feeling. So I think, you know, mid 21 probably is a realistic time frame. However, whenever those come in, it means that people flying small drones. So like toy drones in certain circumstances, you'd be able to fly it in your back garden. Um, you know, you'd be able to fly it. And, and, you know, do I, do I agree with it or not? I don't know. It's one of those from, for me, then it becomes a privacy issue um, and a security issue um, because you can see a lot from popping a, you know, a good camera up in the air above a tree line and, mm -hmm. you know, people could see exactly what I've got in the back garden. You know, they can, I don't know. It's, it's concerning, but at the same time, I think it needs to happen because the technology is safe enough and actually, you know, checking gutters checking roofs checking chimneys do we really need to be sending people up ladders now to potentially have an accident when you could just fire your drone up and, wow. and have a quick look you know and and, and that so they're, they're changing the rules to try and enable that technology which is cool right times move on yes like cars you had to have a guy with a red flag right walking in front of you and you had a car at first and uh we don't do that now. So yeah, it, it, but then the flip side is when you're trying to, you know, tan your, tan the abs, it's uh, <laughs> Dave down the road can come and it's, have a look uh, if he wants. It's my marijuana plantation I'm more bothered about. There you go. Yeah. And I do wonder, you know, whether there's a bit of that, um, whether there's a bit of that, that the police are like, yeah, we're happy because we know that people are going to spot stuff and potentially tell us, right? Yes. And so your company, what sort of services do you provide? I, I can see you obviously provide a lot of guidance. Um, do you teach people how to fly drones or? Yeah, so um, the the kind of drone training side of things, we, we saw that there was a problem coming six years ago because the regulations just came in. There were a couple of drone training schools that popped up that did a, if I'm honest, a really bad job of teaching and they've since disappeared. So kind of probably got that right um and we said right we need to have someone who understands about the drone and remote control side of things and the aviation side of things with a bit of credibility actually teaching properly not just the rules and regulations because they're boring right like who wants to know those it's about how to fly your drone properly how to fly your drone safely and ultimately like if we all stick to doing that we'll be able to enjoy the technology for forever but if the wrong person has their house flown over you know and says hang on a minute that's not right right let's shut this down then none of us are going to be able to fly 
So we, we're the biggest commercial drone training school in the world. Um, we've trained now more than 3,000 commercial pilots um, mm. in the drone space. Um, I mean, we, you know, there's new courses coming out all the time. Um, and if you want your kind of CAA certification, if you want to get the qualifications you need to be able to fly legally in the UK, um, we're the biggest highest rated school that does that and it was about you know taking my experience and now the experience of the team we've got a very very talented team now um you know who work out the kind of learning journey for people of all different backgrounds because it's not like again it's not like a military where you get to profile people before they come in and work out their aptitude and, and send them off a certain stream like we get all sorts of people coming through from you know younger children very old uh, very old people it's fair to say you know who are interested um you know chartered surveyors building contractors um camera men and women you know a whole total kind of broad spectrum it's amazing but the learning journey they all go on is slightly different so we've had to yeah work out how to get the information across that these people need in the most effective way particularly with covid it's been a an interesting time for us to try and do that but yeah i think you know the team are smashing out of the park and everyone really enjoys the training and um and, and hopefully it's keeping the industry safe right like the longer we can make it that there isn't an accident or an incident the longer we're all going to be able to explore what the technology can do and and reap the benefits of it um, so that's what it's all about and the longer you're gonna not be allowed to fly over my house yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's it that's it you have to put a little zone over it and say no one can fly here well it's it's interesting we're having this conversation because as a as a youtuber it's obviously something i've got to start considering now um because i i quite like this whole making videos thing i haven't done a huge amount of it from of any kind of you know <sighs> I haven't got any sort of prowess there is what I'm trying to say, but yeah, I do like the idea. I mean, I went out the other day um, camping in, in wild camping and throwing myself in the river and stuff and had a fire and, and uh, the natural progression of filming in, in that sort of two dimension, if we call it that is to take the third one and put something up in the sky. And yeah. um, so are there, it's what's the sort of cheapest drone you could buy that would handle a GoPro? Oh, crikey. Um, well, most, to be honest, most of them now have moved away from putting other cameras on. Um, and that's the way, you know, if you want something that you can put a camera on, even like a GoPro now, you're actually perversely talking about probably quite a lot of money. Um, um you can get one that's got, the equivalent to a GoPro and it will grade in as if it's the same camera um, for about 350 quid now. Wow. So like a DJI Mavic mini. Um, yeah. Phenomenal bits of kit, like, you know, amazing machines, really the technology that's packed into something that's this big. Would you it's, recommend that one? I'm just writing that name down. Yes. The Mavic mini is, um, it, it's pretty, it's pretty difficult to beat in terms of um, like the price point and what it can do. Um, and, and certainly if it's something that you just want to carry in a bag with you, you know, put it in its little box or whatever, 
carry it with you, fly around for 10 minutes or three minutes around your campsite to get a couple of nice shots as sun sun goes down or something like you can't go wrong with it. It, You know, it's difficult to, it's going to be difficult to beat. Um, And then, yeah, stepping up to something like um, the DJI Mavic 2 Pro would be the next one up. Um, You're talking about 1500 quid for something like that. Um, And it's just got more sensors on it, a bit more wind resilience, that kind of thing. Um, so to all my uh, friends at home, there's a link below the video to you. You can fund the podcast. You've you've heard the prices. That's it. That's the money. That's the money I'm after. Well, that's I'm very you... fortunate. One of my kind subscribers um, bought cat bought microphones for the podcast. Oh wow! Seven hundred and fifty pounds. Um, Crikey! And it's just nice to know that people value what you're doing enough because, you know, we all have self-doubt. We always think, why am I just talking into this camera? Is it, is it helping anyone? I, I hope, I hope it does. And yeah, to get um, not just nice emails from people saying thank you, but also people um, who fund me through, through Patreon and soon to be YouTube memberships and, yeah. And um, this kind gentleman, it's uh, yeah. It's amazing. It, it is amazing. Nice to know. Good to know that there are some, you know, there are some people out there in the world who are still, you know, kind enough to to share, isn't it? Yes, and help yes, other people. Yes, it is. It's it's really appreciated. Yeah. So, Matt, where can people find you? And obviously, we'll put all the links with with the YouTube video. Yeah, that's it. Thank you. So. Um, the the kind of the drone training side of things is uavhub.com um that's the drone training school um the thing that i do now though is um is i try and train people and help people and mentor people so um through aviation in general um and the drone thing if people want that um We've got a YouTube channel that's been going for about a year. I think we're coming up on 7,000 subscribers now. Um, and we've not put anything on for a couple of months just because of the whole, like I've, we've rebuilt the studio in a spare room at home um, in the last couple of weeks and um, and got it ready um, pretty much to start. To, well, you're the first person that we've kind of talked to on, in the new studio. So um, yeah, it's just been a weird time, but you can catch up on that. That's Mr. MPW um, on YouTube. And we're about to launch a, a new YouTube channel called The Drone Mentor, um, because what we're finding on the Mr. MPW side is that there were people coming for the aviation content because they want that, and there were people coming for the drone content because they want that. And the feedback when we've asked for it was like, you know, look, we love the drone stuff or we love the aviation stuff, um, but we don't really, you know, a lot of people do cross over, but there's a, an element out there that don't. And I think we can just serve people better. We can help people at a more granular level um and not waste their time and, and our time ultimately by splitting it out so yeah so it's mr mpw at the moment and the drone mentor and i'm not sure how quickly you'll get this out live but the drone mentor goes live a week after we're filming this now so um potentially by the time you guys and, and ladies are hearing this seeing it it will be uh, it'll be live the drone mentor who made your your introduction video? Because that looked very professional on your YouTube channel. We did. So um, again, are, are quite lucky. We um, we effectively, even though we do drone training and aviation training, the way we looked at it was to set up a media company 
um, so that we can do all the marketing and advertising and things like that um, through the YouTube channel and stuff. So we actually um, had a full-time editor um, and videographer working with us um, for a long time. And, and unfortunately, because of the way that the businesses have gone over the last six months because of the pandemic we've we've had to furlough those people but um yeah so a very talented um lady called lauren burnham uh was the lady who pulled that together and she uh she's got a company called prickly peach films again a big big shout out to lauren for helping us out and getting yes, us to where we congratulations, were congratulations so, great great video yeah that's it so Matt, stay on the line after I've said my goodbyes. Um, obviously, the first one to you. Thank you so much for coming on the show, especially at such short short notice. It's a pleasure. Um, Thank you. Absolutely. I love this podcast because I just get to meet nice people and, <laughs> and, and, and grounded people and people that we can have these sort of chats that hope, hopefully um, help our younger friends out there that are thinking about the military and that sort of thing or people now thinking about buying a drone so thank you ever so much Cheers. to our friends at home much love to you all uh keep smiling if you can like and subscribe that would be wonderful and we'll see you next time friends thank you for listening to the bought the t-shirt podcast please like subscribe and share and don't forget to follow me on social media username chris Thrall. Instagram, Chris.thrall. Thank you.